Where do engineers and designers at companies like BMW, NASA, and Bosch get custom manufactured parts fast? Zometry. With Zometry, anyone with a 3D model can get pricing and order parts thanks to Zometry's instant quoting engine. Access dozens of manufacturing processes like CNC machining, sheet cutting and fabrication, 3D printing, injection molding, and more, along with hundreds of materials, all in a matter of seconds. Check out Zometry today at Zometry.com. That's X-O-M-E-T-R-Y.com. Zometry, where big ideas are built. I'll tell you what my career plan was. I didn't have one. All right. I did not have a career plan. It was it was opportunity, fear, and survival. Any one of those three defined my career. Hello and welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Today we are privileged to speak with Jonathan McWilliams. Jonathan holds a bachelor's degree in metallurgical engineering and has held positions from metallurgist to distinguished engineer at GE to Norman Noble to Merit Medical and now Edwards Life Sciences, where he is currently tasked with developing technical leadership and mentoring programs. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Why, thanks for having me, Aaron. Glad to see you. So I'll start with the same question I ask everyone at the beginning. What made you decide to become an engineer? Well, that's a, yeah, what, well, so I, let's put a little perspective on this. So I grew up on a small island in the North Atlantic called Prince Edward Island. It's the smallest province of Canada. Uh, and I didn't have much, you know, like I was a farm boy. My my dad worked for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I didn't really know what an engineer did. You know, I had I had heard that they were the guys that wore the white helmets on the road crews and they were kind of, you know, uppity and that sort of thing. But I really didn't know much about them. And it came time for me to go to college. And my parents were like, oh, yeah, you're going to college. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something math and science-y. Uh, but nothing really resonated with me until somebody told me about engineering and said, you know, engineering you do the math and the science stuff but you actually do some good with it i'm like oh i'll i'll learn more and next thing you know here i am enrolled in the university of prince edward islands pre-engineering program and i did three years of engineering there and it was a general program you know um didn't it didn't tell you like you didn't pick it you didn't you didn't lock in on something until after you were done right so i did pre-engineering at upei and then i would transfer to either the university of new brunswick or what was then known as the Technical University of Nova Scotia. Uh, I didn't like Fredericton, which is where UNB was. So I'm like, well, I'm going to Halifax to go to Tons. And I figured, well, I'll do mechanical engineering. And then I took dynamics. Uh, dynamics is where they, they separate out the people that can't do mechanical engineering. So <laughs> I was out. I'm like, well, maybe an electrical engineer. And uh, then I took circuits. Uh, and that weeded me out of electrical engineering. And I'm like, okay, well, well civil engineering's all that's left. And a buddy of mine <laughs> said, you know, there's this thing called metallurgy. And I'm like, oh, what's that? And yeah, it's like, well, the civil engineer designs the beam. Yeah. But what if you could pick the metal so the civil engineer can make a smaller beam? And I'm like, oh, that's kind of a neat idea. I'm all right with that. And so we went to, we went to the tour, you know, the tour of the school. And one of the things they had us do was, or they showed us was the thermite reaction. Oh, are you familiar with the thermite reaction at all, Aaron? I remember the name from college and that's about it. Yeah. So the thermite reaction is brilliant. It's how you, it's how you weld rails together, right? Uh, on, in rail lines. And basically you just take, you take aluminum powder and you mix it with rust and you put a sparkler in it, and you run, right? And what happens is, is the aluminum extracts the oxygen from the rust and leaves the iron behind. And okay. it's fire and brimstone. It's amazing. And they did one of <laughs> these in fun. the park. They did one of these in the parking lot. And I'm like, I'm all in. That's what I want to do. And so, thus, I became a metallurgist. Okay, so that's. That's one of my questions is I, I don't know much about metallurgy and we haven't really talked about metallurgy much on the show, maybe once before. Um, but 
this is a super open-ended question, so feel yeah. free to kind of take this wherever you want. What What are just one or two interesting things about metallurgy that probably most other engineers don't really know about? Well, so metallurgy, metallurgy is that bridge between the mine and the machine shop. Okay, so the miners, the mining engineers will 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 dig the ore and get it ready to ship to the metallurgist. And then the metallurgist venue is from, okay, you've gotten me some ore, you've refined it a little bit. I'm going to refine it further, convert it to metal, then convert that to a semi-finished good, and then ship it to the machine shop. And then the mechanical engineer can take over and, and you know, machine the stuff. That's part of it. And the other part of it too, is the metallurgist is the guy that can that can go in and help you when you have a mistake, you know, so the mechanical engineer knows all the mechanics and the dynamics and all that stuff that, anyway, he can handle that. (laughs) And then, but sometimes things don't work, right? It's like, this was supposed to work, but it broke. And the, the one thing that I, my true passion in metallurgy is, is fractography and failure analysis. Because if you have a piece of metal that has fractured, Give it to a metallurgist that's got his wits about him, and he'll be able to tell you why it broke, where where the fracture started, and when it broke with respect to your process. Um, and it's it's really important because sometimes you, you make assumptions, oh, it broke because of this, when that wasn't the problem at all. It was a low cycle fatigue issue, and you think it was an overload, but it wasn't. It was a low cycle fatigue that eventually ended up in an overload situation. So you put a band-aid on this thing and you don't actually fix the root cause, which was what was causing that low cycle fatigue. So, so the root cause may not be some some fundamental issue at the foundry where this piece of metal was originally right. forged. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It might be it might be you know, it it can be something in the process where or how this thing is being used that that you know, so subtle that you know, you the normal person, the normal, the normal mm-hmm. classically trained engineer may miss, and that's and you the can beauty tease of it out. yeah, you can tease that out, and and that's the beauty of the metallurgist, right? That's, Neat. that's very that's, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. You know, so you mentioned this low cycle fatigue. I mean, I know you just kind of threw that out there, but what what are some of the problems that that you see in as you're doing these root? Uh, root cause analysis for for metallurgical failures <laughs> well typically when you're talking low cycle fatigue and somebody's used a weld where they shouldn't use a weld or somebody's used a weld and not done the full process that you need to do a weld right sometimes certain welds are fine if you fully heat treat them right if you don't fully heat treat them then it becomes a stress concentrator and mm-hmm. next thing you know the normal vibratory cycling of the of this system say uh, an amusement park ride would be fine uh, except you didn't post weld heat treat it so now that weld is a stress concentrator and next thing you know fracture starts and once it starts you know, that's the end of the that's the end of the day interesting and, and, and so that's why we put a lot of emphasis on you'll you'll hear you, you, when in certain aspects you'll hear about people saying ooh don't weld on this. Like you ever see, you'll see that on a car frame. It's like, do not weld on that car frame, like certain car frames and, and, and things. They'll be like, don't weld on them. And the reason is, is because you can weld on them, but you have to post weld heat treat it in order to make Which sure the most weld people is... won't think to do. No, especially if yeah. you're restoring a car or something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's, what is a, what are the metallurgical problems that you solve that you're most proud of? Oh wow. Um you know, I don't think I can put I I can't put my hand on on a single type of problem. You know, I really enjoy just the 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 fact that as an engineer, our job, Aaron, your job and my job, our job is to solve problems for people that don't know how to solve them themselves, right? So right. you are a you you're mechanical engineer, I assume. And so right. y- you can solve those sorts of problems. I'm a metallurgist, so I'll solve problems related to metallurgy. And when somebody's got a really bad problem 
and they're like struggling and they're slamming their head against the wall. And I'm like, hold on, slow down. Let's back up and just look at this whole thing. And when I can say, you see this little detail here? I know it doesn't mean much to you, but it actually matters. And, and you know, you didn't know and that's okay. Let me educate you. And if I can take, if I can take a half an hour, an hour on a whiteboard and show somebody why they're having their problem and they get it and they get it. I'm so happy. Right. So that's really when I get fulfilled. It's like, okay, you, you, you understand where I'm at. You understand the problem and now you can go and fix it. And that is probably the most important thing I can, you know, the most enjoyable thing of, of our jobs. I think I've often defined an engineer as a professional technical problem solver. And I think that at least me personally, I, I find um, so much joy in in helping a person understand how to solve a problem themselves. And I wonder if that's if there's something about that that's not not unique to engineers, but are, do engineers take more joy in, in helping people solve their own problems than, I don't know, some other profession? Have you had any experience with that or have you seen any patterns or trends or even just with, with your own experience notice that one way or the other? Uh, I don't know if it's unique to engineers. I think we all want to help each other, right? I think overall, we, we're, we're all, everybody's good. We all, we all want to do the right thing. We all want to be, we all want to be helpful and, and be useful. And, and I don't think that's unique to engineers. I, I would argue that anybody is like that. Um, deep down, you know, maybe, maybe they're blinded by money and they're, you know, putting on airs and stuff. But I, I, I hold, I'd like to think that everybody has that overall inherent want to help people i hope so i hope i'm right i could be wrong but yeah part of the human dna right yeah exactly what makes our species who we are i mean we got here by helping each other right if, if we we're uh tearing each other down uh every hour of every day we, we wouldn't be where we are right now no i i i agree i agree sometimes sometimes we do tear each other down uh sometimes we do but i don't think it's intentional well I don't think it, I think it would be different depending on how the interactions happened. How's that? Yeah. Uh, context it's, plays a big part. And it's a little deep here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. But hey, it's the end of the day in here. Getting yeah. deep stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, have you followed Tesla's gigacasting at all? Uh, you know, just a little bit. Um, just a little bit, you know. And it's funny. I worked in a foundry for for five years, uh, making investment castings. And so I got to learn, I got to learn some, from some very talented people, a lot about castings. And when I just looked at what Elon was trying to do with this giga casting, and I'm just like, you know, there's a lot to overcome there because you've got, you've got thermodynamics, so you've got thermal transfer issues. You've got to get that metal to where it's got to be before it goes solid. Right. So you got alloy considerations because depending on your alloying, you can actually keep you can keep a casting slushy for quite a while. Slushy. Mm. You, yeah. Okay. So you could and if you've got enough force behind it, you can just you can just fill your cavities. And actually that's what you would want. Right. You would want it to be slushy so that you don't have too much thermal transfer to get it to solid. Right. And right. Yeah. The, the more thermal transfer you've got, the the more possibility of shrinking in cavities and that kind of uh, that kind of stuff. And so, it's a hell of a challenge, you know, especially to cast something like he's casting. And then, and think about it from a tooling standpoint. You've got all these poles, you know, like that thing has got poles, and they have to work. They have to be timed perfectly. And, it, you know, Aaron, you've probably worked with some really good toolmakers in your time. But a really good toolmaker is they are they are they are the most brilliant individuals, I think, in our society. A really good toolmaker is, you know, we I, I, I feel often we don't give toolmakers the credit that they are due because those individuals can visualize a 3D situation 
analyze it and say, okay, I'm going to build a tool right here like this. And I'm going to, I'm going to make my cuts here. And I got to machine it perfectly. So it fits in the slot. And, you know, we would say, oh, well, you just do that with a CNC machine. You know what? Yeah, you can. If the CNC machine helps, it makes things easier. But still at the end of the day, the craftsmanship that a good tool maker can build. And when I, when I see that, that casting, that, that, that Tesla's baking, I'm just like, whoa, I would have loved, I just, I would love to have like an hour just to, just to watch that tool move, moving and to see how the tool maker put it together. I would love, I would, I would pay hundreds of dollars to watch a documentary of, of how that process was developed. I think it would be fascinating. Yeah. You know, and when you think about what, what Elon's doing with the Gigafactory and, and with the Giga casting and all that, and you compare it to what we did as, as, as you know, as North Americans, right? You know, Canada and the United States during World War II and the subsequent in the 60s and some of the stuff that those guys did, guys and gals did with like, like slide rules and, and, and common sense and good engineering and they, you know, and, and, and they just, they didn't, they didn't look at it as like, oh, we can't do this. That's too hard. They just said, yeah, we're going to do it. We got to do it or we're done. You know, so we'll figure it out. And, and it's so impressive, right? It's so impressive. And I think one of the things that, that Elon Musk has done is he's captured that, that can do attitude. I don't care, you know, what the cost, you know, we're going to get her done and then we'll, we'll reap the benefits later now. Yeah. You know, well, speaking of process development, that is something else that you have quite a lot of experience with. Do you feel like within the uh, umbrella classification of engineer or even mechanical engineer, is, is one engineer as good as the next when it comes to process development? Or is there a specific kind of a like a subset of skills that, that makes a process engineer particularly good? No. I don't think so. Uh, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have probably had a different answer. But I think, I don't think the education, right, the education that we go through, right? So our education, we learned how to solve problems, right? I learned how to solve problems in metallurgy. You learned how to solve problems in mechanical engineering. Uh, but I think, I think for a process engineering standpoint, it's a mindset, right? Like I'm a metallurgist and I'm solving problems in areas of chemical engineering and electrochemical engineering. I don't know, you know, like I was never classically trained in those yet. Here I am building, I, I think about it like a neurological model, like, you know, the, uh, the AI models where you have a series of inputs and a series of outputs, and then you have some, you know, neurons in between, which I, I think that's just fascinating. Everybody's afraid of it, but they shouldn't be. And, and so you put the inputs in and you compare it to the outputs and you build the model in between. The difference between AI and FEA is FEA, you know the math. AI, you don't know the math. And it just makes up a model. And and so I've done that for some of the processes like electropolishing. Right? I've got a mathematical model in my head that has no science behind it. It's just my we call it intuition. Right? And 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 I would argue that uh, any engineer can do that. You don't have to be a mechanic. You don't have to be a metallurgist. You don't have to be an electrical engineer. You just got to have the passion and be open to the prospect of, well, I may not understand the science of what's going on or all of it, right? Key statement there. You got you to gotta understand science, but you don't have to know it all to be a process engineer. You've just got to be willing to, to watch and learn and, and understand and build your own model of what the process is doing. That makes sense. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? It does. It does. I, I agree. Um, I think that there is a particular mindset that does especially well with process engineering. And I think they're very closely related to R&D engineers. I, I think it's kind of the same mindset, in my opinion, that mindset of, of um, uh, giant creativity, right? And, and, and a desire almost almost an inclination towards trying things with the expectation of failure, right? Whereas oh, yeah. others may just want to do something that they know is going to work. <laughs> one of the, one of the things I tell the young engineers that, that I've worked with over the years, I'm like, if you're not, if you're not breaking stuff, you're not trying hard enough. 
<laughs> right? Yeah. If you're not breaking stuff, maybe you should be a, a sustaining engineer. Yeah, like exactly. That. We don't we don't want our sustaining engineers breaking things. <laughs> well, yeah, but even well, I I I agree with you and I disagree with you. Uh, sometimes, okay. yeah, sometimes a process a process is never fully baked. Right, process is never fully baked, and stuff happens. Um, and I think a sustaining engineer, you know, should go out there and and be like, my process is broken, and I don't know why. I'm going to try this, and if I break it more, oh well, it's still broken. You know, I, I think I think in troubleshooting, you should be allowed to break stuff, and you should be given the freedom to make mistakes. And and you know, it, it's I think it's important. I think a sustaining engineer has just as hard of a job as a as a guy developing the process because I I live in both worlds, you know. In in my opinion, that's where the fun is, right? Being able to break stuff and try new things and and Absolutely. see what happens. Yeah. Well, speaking of processes, here's my shameless plug for my company, Pipeline Design and Engineering. Let's not forget that sponsor of the Being an Engineer podcast. We are referred to as integrators, often machine builders, automation, and certainly that's what we do. But really, we're, I think we're process developers. That's where our core strength is. And then we're very good at building automated machines so we can build the automation around said processes and put it together a, a complete production automated system. Um, but let's move on with Jonathan McWilliams today. Jonathan, your role now is distinguished engineer. That's your role title. What, what does it mean to be a distinguished engineer? That's a great question. Uh, when you find out, let me know, will you? <laughs> uh, so, at, at at Edwards, right? They they have like tiers of engineers, right? So I am uh, engineer five, I think. Yeah, level five, right? So I got distinguished and senior distinguished. Um, so uh, you know, I I think I look at at a distinguished engineer as has uh, a recognition of one my education right and more importantly my experience right so i've had experiences in foundries i've had experiences in medical device i've got over 20 years now in in medical devices um and and specifically in yeah you know i i did the classic thing that they say never to do i pigeonholed myself into cylindrical Laser cut electro polished medical devices. That is and very niche. It's very. It's a very niche thing, right? And I, I, I'm glad I did, and and I'm sure I will continue for many years to come to still be cylindrical laser cut electro polished medical devices. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and frankly, I'm I'm okay with that because. You know, I go to sleep at night knowing that I'm doing something good and I'm helping somebody who can't help themselves, right? Especially a patient, you know, they can't, you know, a patient can't, you know, can't fix themselves. And so I do a little bit, you know, every day and, and I help somebody have a better life. And that's, you know, so I think, I think the title is just recognition of, of my experience and my passion around doing, doing what I do. Um, I think that's about the only way I could describe it. That's great. Well, you can't get better sleep than that, can you? Go to bed at night, know that you're helping people. That's right. Back to that human DNA. Yep. Uh, Technical responsibilities are not the only thing that you're focusing on these days. One of your your core focuses is developing technical leadership and mentoring programs. What have you found are maybe a few of the biggest obstacles that engineers encounter when they're trying to develop those those leadership skills? Well, okay, that that's a good that that's a great question. So let's let's just be honest. Yeah, Aaron, you and I went to school. And we were trained to be engineers. We weren't trained to be people people. We weren't trained to manage people. We weren't trained to lead. We were trained to get our calculator out and calculate the moment of inertia about a beam, you know, 12 feet long or whatever, right? Or in my case, how do I, how do I melt 17-4 and not kill everybody in the room? Little things like that. But we were never trained on being managers. We were never trained to be leaders. None of that happens in an engineering degree. And I think that's the biggest 
the biggest uh, hurdle we have to overcome is because we'll get high enough up in our career. Eventually, somebody's going to say, you know, Jonathan, you're pretty, you're a pretty nice fella and you can do some great engineering. Why don't you take over this team and lead them? It's like, well, wait a minute. You, you said, you said I'm a nice guy and I do good engineering. And now you want me to lead people? Like that's a different job description. What do you do with? Um, and some people, I think the overall, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The overall prevailing thing is like, oh, well, that's what you just do. You get to a point and then you got to, you got to jump over to management. You, you can't be an engineer anymore. You take, you're driving home from work, take that calculator, and chuck it out the window when you're going over a bridge, right? Cause you're never using it ever again. Um, and there's a certain amount of truth to that, but some of us aren't necessarily good managers. And I think the biggest hurdle that you've got to deal with is once you go into manage the management space, it becomes ambiguous, right? What used to be cut and dry, one plus one equals two, right? or the moment of inertia on this beam is why, right? That's no longer the case. It becomes ambiguous because now I've got a strategy and I've got, well, I got to do, this is what I have to get done. But if I make this person do it, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt their feelings. And, and, and if you can't, if you can't deal with that, you're not going to be an effective manager, right? If you're, if you can't cope with the people side of the equation, right? You're never going to be an effective manager. I, 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 I will say that till I'm blue in the face, right? Because, um, that, you know, management and leading is, is 50% people and 20% strategy, 50% strategy, in my opinion. I, you know, and, you know, as an engineer, if I become a manager, my job, my, the reason I have an engineering degree is not to engineer, but to understand the issues that my team is having so that I can have a frank and honest conversation with them and say, okay, this is how we've got to get through this. You know, you need to do these engineering tasks and I understand what you have to do because I've done it too. That does make sense. You and I talked a little before the show about, about feelings and how engineers aren't necessarily the most uh, comfortable with like expressing our feelings and talking about feelings. How... How does um, a certain level of comfort with one's feelings correlate to the ability to be an effective, respected technical leader? Um, I think it's just, I think it's extremely important. Um, it, it's interesting. So, where I work now at Edwards, um, uh, it was recognized that the technical the technical folks weren't necessarily staying technical and they were moving over management morals um, because there was a certain, uh, there's a certain belief system, not at and I would say it doesn't matter what company you're in, change the name from Edwards to J and J to, you know, Boston scientific or general motors. It's like, yeah, you're going to, you're going to peak out. You're not going to be able to become, you're not going to be as successful as if you went over to management and, and let, let a team and had a, had a big impact. Uh, there may be some truth to that, but, at the end of the day, we got to be happy with our work, right? We, we have to be happy with our work. And so even as a technical leader, right? So I've been tasked to, to do this and, and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. That's touchy feely stuff. I don't, I don't know what that is. And so it forced me to, to, to learn about stuff that I had just ignored for, for lack of a better, you know, and, HR has those presentations, but Aaron, you, you got your own company, so you can, you can set your own tone. But when you're at a big company and HR comes in and they's like, Oh, we want you to do this, this, and this about your career planning. I, I am not kidding. It was like in, in, uh, Charlie Brown when the teacher starts talking. Yeah. That's all I heard. And I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Just get me through this so I can go back and, and do some metallurgy. And if I hadn't known then, what I know now, I would have had a different approach to a lot of that training that I went through. Uh, so I find myself actually going back and redoing it with my eyes open and my, and my, my, my eyes open and my, I, you know, my heart open, I guess you could say, right? Like, like just lay it on me because I'll figure it, I need, I need this. I need these skills, even as a technical leader, I need these skills because I'm no longer 
engineering it for the sake of engineering. I'm engineering for the sake of helping a younger engineer come up and be a strong and contributing member of the team. Recognizing that you have to do that is important. It's lost on us. Sometimes we get locked into our into our head that we have to, you know, either be a manager or be or or stay as an individual contributor. But there is actually a shade of gray in the middle there, and, I, and that's where I'm trying to live, right? Because I enjoy teaching. For for the sake of other engineers out there, you mentioned um, if you had a chance to go back and and listen to some of these HR presentations. We don't even have to classify it as HR presentations, but yeah. maybe some of the soft skills or the leadership things. There what, you go. What are one or two of those things that you recommend engineers, maybe especially younger engineers, um, actively go out and try to learn and have experiences with? Uh, well, uh, career planning, right? So the career planning thing uh, is probably the biggest the the biggest thing i could I could talk about because i I'll tell you what my career plan was. I didn't have one. All right. I did not have a career plan. It was it was opportunity, fear, and survival, right? Any one of those three defined my career. So um, you know, I got laid off from the foundry. I'm like, oh, what am I gonna do? And next thing you know, I got a gig making medical devices and you know, and then I got an opportunity to go to a bigger company and I just like no plan, none. And I'm happy to admit that. Um if I knew then what I knew now, one of the things I would have done is I would have taken my career plan and and taken an approach to not what technical skills do I need. I have the technical skills, right? They they were in, it, it, they were in 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 imbued upon me during my degree, and so I have the technical skills. But what I didn't get during my degree was soft skills, like hey. Here's how you deal with a tense situation. Please don't escalate it like you would be apt to do because of your personality. Instead, take these approaches. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and if I had known that, I think of all these times where I got into battles with people over stupid stuff. And I'm like, you know, I could have handled that so much better. And when I say that battles with people over stupid stuff, that's not very long ago. Like maybe two or three years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and... Uh, I think it's important that we that that if there's one thing I could tell a young engineer, it's like if you get an opportunity to learn any soft skills, take it. You know, especially if the company's paying for it. One, you're going to get paid to do it, right? So let's just let's just call that out, right? You're getting paid to get do it. You don't. You can. You can. You can. You know, they understand that you're going to be doing this training, so the deadlines will be somewhat flexible, but you actually might get something out of it. Something that you hadn't thought of. So go in there with an open mind and a, and be ready to absorb something that you weren't classically trained on. What has been one of the most rewarding leadership experiences of your career to date? Uh, well, you know, I'll tell you, um, I I fell victim to over the years being, hey, Jonathan, you're a you're a pretty good engineer. You got your you got your crap together there. Why don't you go and lead this team? And I'd be like, yeah, I guess so. You know, like, you know. Uh, you know, not realizing what I didn't know. And so I take these leadership opportunities and they were awful. They were awful. Absolutely atrocious. Awful, awful for you or for your both. team or both. For both? But especially okay. for me, I have a bit of a, I have a bit of a strong personality. You might've noticed. Um, and, but especially when things get ambiguous and I don't handle ambiguity very well. Right, it just got thoroughly disagreeable, and uh, to the point where when I came to Edwards, the same thing was starting to happen. And I pulled my boss aside, and I'm like, "Listen, I see where this is going, and you're thinking about putting me into into running this 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 part of this facility." Oh yeah, yeah, don't do it. It'll end badly, and I don't want to do it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, and so. Here I am. It's like, okay, you can stay over there and, 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 you know, people will leave you alone. But I realized that was a mistake too. And I was given an opportunity to, to pursue this technical leadership thing, which forced me to be introspective and realize that I couldn't handle ambiguity. All right. So 
okay, I'm 51, right? 50, at 50, I figured out I couldn't manage ambiguity. Think about that for a minute, Aaron, right? So I've been practicing engineering for almost 30 years, and I just now realized that I can't handle ambiguity very well. That's half the battle. That makes me feel better about myself, yeah. Jonathan. You know, I, I feel like I'm a slow learner and, and like, wow, I should have realized this about myself 20 years ago. So I appreciate your your candor and your vulnerability. Oh, yeah. Right? And yeah, very yeah. Much. Oh, and, and so once I recognized that I had this issue, I could vocalize it. And so when I was interacting with people and, and they were like presenting me with, with issues, I could tell them, like looking dead in the eye, like I don't handle ambiguity very well here. So I'm going to... I want to count on you to help me get through this decision-making process that we've got to do. And so I turned it from from Jonathan, the decision-maker, to Jonathan, the vulnerable guy that has a lot of experience. Can you help me work through this? And it actually has been more fruitful than just being sitting back and being the oracle. This is what you will do. Uh, and instead trying to take the, let's let's work on this together because I can't handle doing this by myself. And the other, the team that I'm working with, the other engineers, they go like, okay, uh, we get it. We understand. Let's work on it together. And they actually appreciate the fact that I'm, I'm not perfect. And I appreciate the fact that I'm not perfect, you know, but. There's a book called The Culture Code. Wonderful, wonderful book. One of the best books I've ever read about building a team and a culture. And the author, um, investigates a myriad of different situations and teams and, and 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 circumstances and he boils it down to three pillars that are most influential in creating a uh, a culture a positive culture and and one of them is is uh sharing vulnerability so i thought that was pretty amazing you know the, all the things that he studied sharing vulnerability was was one of the three most important factors that led to uh positive um, meaningful cultures in a, in whether it's a company or a family or a sports team, whatever. I believe that. I, I believe that to be true. Um, especially yeah. with, with how impactful it's been for me to admit where I'm weak. It's, it's, um, yeah, you got to admit where you're weak. Yeah. Well, on, on the subject of, uh, of growth, I mean, you've accomplished quite a lot in your career already. And, um, of course, there's there's always more that we can oh. learn and, and more that we can grow. What's what's an area right now? You mentioned uh, recognizing you don't deal well with ambiguity. <laughs> Maybe beyond that, what what's another area that you're trying to improve yourself right well, now? Well, right now my focus is is on the ambiguity. Um, that that's a big thing, and it, it's funny you you mentioned that. So at at Edwards, uh, they focus on. Oh, what is there's a corn fairy. Uh, it's a, it's a consulting firm and they have these 30 some different aspects of, of life and business, right? And it's like managing ambiguity and, you know, driving the team and a bunch of these keywords, you know, the almost the Charlie Brown, wah, 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 right? And I've stopped doing the wah, wah, wah. And I've kind of looked at them and they, and it's really nice. They give you, they say they give you the topic and then they tell you if you're good at this, you exhibit the following behaviors. If you're bad at this, you exhibit the following behaviors. And if you're really, really just too good at this and you're overusing it, these are your behaviors, right? So the the first one was managing ambiguity. And I'm working on that right now. And and I'm actually they've started the the process of forcing us to, you know, be introspective yet again. Because it's coming up on the end of the year, and I literally just got the email. Hey, it's time for you to take a look at what what you want to work on for next year. So, I I honestly can't answer that question right now because I've been so I've been so focused on 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 this component. Um, now I haven't really yeah. thought about anything else. What are some ways that you're going about working on this issue of ambiguity? Help us maybe walk us through your process, and in hopes that maybe that might inspire well, others. Because I've recognized it, that's half the battle. Once you understand you have an issue, that's half the problem or half the battle. Because now that I've under now that I understand it, I, I okay, I've got a problem with the ambiguity. And when I see stuff becoming ambiguous, I can be like, I can hesitate for my gut reaction. You have that 
guttural reaction, right? Like, I am gonna, you know, like, you're, you're gonna say something that you may regret because you're reacting, you've got this, this fear in you of like, this is ambiguous, am, sorry, ambiguous, this is ambiguous. Um, you don't know the answer. You, you have to have an answer, right? Because you're, you're, you're Jonathan, the 30 year veteran engineer, 27 years, whatever it is. Like you have to have an answer. If you don't have an answer, why are you here? Right. So I've got to take those gut instinct feelings and, and suppress them down so that I don't give that passionate, you know, snap, not necessarily politically, not politically correct, but not kind, that unkind response. And instead step back and yeah. say, okay, things are getting ugly. I need to take a break here. And, and, and to a certain extent, vocalize that to whoever you're interacting with. It's like, okay, you know, uh, uh, things are getting a little, uh, are freaking out here, you know, and, and be able to say that. And then, and actually it really helps. It really helps because the other part is like, oh, okay, I get it. I see where you're at. And, and then we can kind of, they can help massage the conversation so that I can start to, you know, and I can ask the right questions and, you know, step back. And I, I think, I think that's, that's probably, yeah, half the battle. You need to know where you're weak. You need to be, you need to be, you need to know where you're weak, admit where you're weak, and then understand when you get into those situations so that you don't do something dumb. I, I love the way that you put that. Um, it makes me think of, we have some tenets here at Pipeline, some philosophies, right, that we try to live by. They're hanging up on a wall. There are, I think we have nine of them or maybe 10. Anyway, one of them is take what's on the inside, put it on the outside and talk about it. And I've found this to be so, I mean, it's exactly what you were just saying, you know, it's recognizing a feeling that you're having and then expressing that feeling. And I just, just the other day, there was a, there was a, a minor concern with one of our team members here. And I was thinking to myself, man, what am I going to do about this? How, how am I going to approach this? And I, I, I thought to myself, oh, it's the tenant. Take what's on the inside, put it on the outside. So I just approached the team members and, hey, you know what? I've got this mild concern. I think we should talk about it. What do you think? And, and we had a great conversation about it. You know, just getting that out there and into the open is is super, super helpful. And people really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. It, 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 you know, I think I think you're right. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to be, you just got to talk. You know, I think sometimes yeah. we make things, we make things too complicated. You know, we put on our little, our, our, we're, we're a Ken, a Ken doll or a Barbie doll, you know, like we're plastic and we're perfect. You know, we put that on, you know, we have our synergy and stuff. And, and sometimes I think we just need to have a frank conversation. And I think you should be allowed to have a frank conversation, not insulting. Now, frank doesn't mean insulting. Frank doesn't mean, um, you know, hurtful. We, we don't want to hurt each other, you know, uh, we're all in this together, right? We've all got a job to do and we, 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 we want to make the world a better place. And so, you know, if we're not seeing eye to eye, well, let's, let's talk about it. Maybe we can figure things out and work together and, and solve it. And I, I, I've taken that approach and it's helping me. And in fact, I think that when you're having those frank conversations, it, it calls for being extra respectful oh. and extra kind and polite, Absolutely. right? And that gets down to just the words that you use, um, just lots of pleases and thank yous and um, kindergarten skills, right? Yeah. We call them sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think that people really, they appreciate that. And, and when you're feeling that, um, that that anxiety or frustration boil up inside of you and you're not sure how to handle it, that is exactly the, the time when you just, you take what's on the inside, you put it on the outside. And I like that. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to use that. It was passed on to me by someone else. I take no credit for it, but I, I sure have found a lot of value in, in those yeah. few words there. You know, and, and it comes back to, um, yeah, you just got to be nice to each other. Hey, okay? we're not trying to, 99% of the time, we're not trying to hurt each other. Anything that does become as, yep. come across as hurtful, in my experience, it's unintentional. Totally. Yeah. All right, Jonathan. Well, I've got one more question for you, and then we'll we'll wrap okay. things up here. Specifically within the context of your role as an engineer, what is one thing that frustrates you? And conversely, 
one thing that brings you joy? Well, it's the same thing, <laughs> if you can manage that. So mm. if, you, if you think about this, uh, Aaron, we are standing on the shoulders of giants, right? right? There was metallurgists that came before me that spent their entire career working out something. Let's take, and so Leonard Euler, right? You know who he is? Euler? You, I do not. Yes, you do, because he's the guy that figured out the moment of inertia calculations and all those formulae oh, okay. that you use, that you have memorized and you can just whip them out as, as, a, as a mechanical engineer, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. yes, everyone out there, I have them all memorized, one hundred percent. But definitely, that was it. That was his <laughs> life's work, working on those equations and quite a few other things, mind you. And then you, we just use them as routine, right? They're just routine for us, right? So we're right. standing on his shoulders. And absolutely, what frustrates me is the old engineer, right? They they might be listening. They know who they are, right? I was one of them, and where we're just like. You young guys, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, pug kids, you know, your education is like, whatever, you know, get out of my face, get out of my office, go learn something, come back, right? We've all know, we've all met that engineer, right? We've all met him or her. Um, and that person, that person, I was, I was going down that road. I'll admit that I, I was going down that road. And then they asked me to be technical leader and I started to, really think things through and I'm like, oh geez, don't do that. Don't do that. And so that annoys me. When I see somebody behaving like that, that annoys me. But on the same token, however, that if that same engineer is just like, you know, like here, here. All right, so I graduated in 1995, Aaron. Right? So my software revision is nineteen ninety five. I have somebody that just joined my team. Or yeah, I say my team. Yeah, my team. Why not? It's my team. They're they're all my peeps, right? They're all my friends, and they're all good engineers. Right. Well, she just joined the team. She graduated in two thousand and two, so her software revision level is two thousand and two. Okay. Now, what we forget as as the version nineteen ninety five, we have certain subroutines, certain things that we learned. Like you know, I learned about you know metallography using optical microscopy and how to prep those samples. Well, version 2002, they've deleted that subroutine and replaced it with something much more current and much more effective, right? And so when the old 95 guy, you know, Windows 95 over here says, well, you should be doing, you should be using hyperterminal. And they're like, like, what? Go away, old man. Like, we're, 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 we've, we've graduated to something better. We've got Windows Explorer here or whatever. And, it's important as 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 we get older, you know, we need to understand that the shoulders that we're standing upon, eventually we become the shoulders. And we have to pick those young engineers up, put them on our shoulders, and push them up so they can be more successful than we are. Right? That's absolutely critical. I don't care who you are. I don't care what kind of engineer. I don't care anything. That is our job. Eventually, we get to a point where our job is to help a young engineer succeed, no matter what the cost. I love that. You know, it, it demonstrates a high degree of just caring and um, thoughtfulness. And honestly, it, it reminds me of being a parent, right? We just, we want our kids to be better yeah. than we are. And that's just an indication of, of care and love for the people that we Absolutely. work with. And plus, I can't retire. If I don't teach them everything I know, I can't retire. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Great point. No, but it's. A, I think it's important, and I, and I think you know. So, like, when I can, in, when I can push some some of my knowledge. Right. So I'm at version 1995 with this huge database. If I can take some of my database and copy it to version 2022, then I've done my job. I've done my job. Right. That's that's it in a nutshell. Like. We, as, as seasoned engineers, we were taught when we were at one point, we were those young engineers and somebody took us under their wing, be that a professor or whatever. And they said, check it out. This is what you got to do. And we foundered and we made mistakes and, and, you know, and, and, and some of the guys would laugh at us and say, you're dumb. And, but a lot of them didn't, and a lot of them got it. And they're like, you know what? You just learned a valuable lesson, son. And. You'll never do that again. And uh, 
I take the uh, I take the approach of, you know, you need to learn, and I'm here to help you. And I want everybody Absolutely. to do that. I think everybody, everybody that's listening should should just think about that for a minute and remember there was somebody that helped them. And it's, it's always time to give back. I love it. What a great message. Jonathan, this has been such a, a privilege and a delight talking with you today. Thank you for the stimulating conversation and the wonderful message that you've shared with all of the engineering listeners out there in the community. No, thanks Thank for, Aaron, listen, boy, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. How can, I mean, after listening to this, I, I, I bet there are going to be some people who would love to talk with you one-on-one. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, probably the best way is to find me on LinkedIn. I'm no, I've no doubt, Aaron, that somebody that's listening to this will be able to, uh, find you on LinkedIn and find me or however. Sometimes I can't find people on LinkedIn. Um, the other way to get me, if you really, if you can uh, be patient, let me wade through my inbox is my email. It's jonathan.mcwilliams at gmail.com. And that's Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N. And Mac Williams with M-A-C. People forget that. Uh, the A, Scottish. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, you can send me an email. No guarantee on the email because I was just looking at it and it's like, wow, I've got 2,512 unread emails <laughs> in my inbox. <laughs> All right, LinkedIn it is. <laughs> LinkedIn it is, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Jonathan, thank you again so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it, Aaron. Thanks for asking me, and, and uh, I, uh, I'm glad I, we had this opportunity to connect. Likewise. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.